Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have invited us into your family. That by adoption, we have become children of God. And that we're members of one another. That we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that you've loved us in this way and you've shed your own blood that we would be redeemed and brought into this family. We worship you for that. God, I pray for the teaching of your word this morning that what comes out of my mouth would be true, that it would glorify you, that it would honor you, that it would convict hearts, that it would encourage your people, that it would spur us on towards love and good deeds and greater godliness. And we thank you for an opportunity to come together and to simply worship you and sing songs of praise and meditate on your word. God, would you bear fruit from this time that we share together. In Christ's name, amen. So I want you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 27. If you don't have a Bible on our welcome table that I keep mentioning, we have Bibles. We would love for you to have one. Take it, keep it. Let that be a gift from us to you. If you're going to use one of our Bibles, we'll be on page 21. Otherwise, if you have your own Bible, it's going to be Genesis 27. And we're going to read this whole chapter together, which is a long chapter. So let's get right to it. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two, young, or two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to his mother, to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. 
Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then Isaac said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and blessing, or, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau com comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. 
If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? That was a long reading. Thank you for bearing with me in that. Genesis has some of these very long scenes of particular moments in the lives of the patriarchs. And far from just moving the narrative forward, which they do, they also reveal a lot to us theologically, a lot about God, and they also actually present to us quite a bit of personal application. So let's start by reflecting on this wonderful truth, that God uses screwed up people to accomplish his plans. There's not a single character in this scene, I think, who isn't engaged in something awful. It's kind of sad, actually. And yet God still succeeds in accomplishing his divine plans, even through twisted people like this. And praise God for that, right? Because unless you're some kind of crazy exception, you belong in the category of screwed up, twisted people. In fact, there is no exception except Christ, right? This is another wonderful affirmation from Genesis that despite our flaws and despite our failures, even despite our willful rebellion against God, as we're going to see in the work of Isaac here, God's purposes, his plans will not fail. Now, I want to remind you that back in chapter 25, God declared his plan that in his sovereign will, Esau, the older brother, would serve Jacob, the younger brother. That is to say that it was God's intention that his covenant blessing that he gave to Abraham would pass not to Esau, the oldest son, who should have had it by right, but that it would instead pass to Jacob, the younger son. And I should also remind you that in that same chapter, even as God was declaring this truth, Esau, who had the blessing by birthright, remember this? He foolishly sold it to his younger brother willingly for a stupid bowl of stew. And now we see how that comes to pass. How this reality, this sort of bait and switch happens here in the text. And it comes about through the twisted actions of all four of these characters, kind of each trying their own way to manipulate things. So let's consider how sinful, the sinful actions of these characters and their motivations kind of plays out in the story. First, you have Isaac, who makes his best attempt to bless his favored son Esau in opposition to the prophecy that God already gave that the blessing would pass to the younger son. Surely, Rebekah told to Isaac, her husband, what God had declared to her regarding the blessing going to Jacob, the younger son, and not Esau. And yet Isaac, showing favoritism to his older son, fully intended that if it was up to him, God would not get his way, but Isaac would get his way, and Esau would be blessed. And so Isaac attempts to subvert God's plan, regarding the blessing of Abraham. And of course, in an ironic twist, he ends up affirming God's plan, thinking he's doing what he wants, all the while accomplishing God's will. So Isaac's desire was clearly to pass on this Abrahamic blessing to the child that God had already declared would not 
receive the blessing. Then Esau, for his part, knowing full well that he had already sold his inheritance, forfeited his right, he ignored the oath that he swore to his younger brother Jacob back in chapter 25, and he was ready to do whatever he could to take from Isaac what he no longer had any right to. Esau was more than happy to violate his oath, contradict his word to get what he thought he deserved. And yet, once again, he's outwitted by his crafty brother with the help of his conniving mother, and he doesn't get the blessing. The truth is, though, Esau wasn't robbed of anything. He sees himself as a victim, but he had already given up what he despised and traded for a bowl of stew. As for Rachel, although she clearly heard from God that the older son would serve the younger son, she decides to just take matters into her own hand as if God couldn't make this happen by his own work. She's going to do whatever she can to make sure that it happens. Rather than relying on the power of God to bring about what God declares, she instead trusts in her scheming. She deceives her own husband, plays favorites against her older son, and manipulates her family in a really awful way, such that actually, as far as we can tell, she never sees her favored son Jacob again after this moment. And Jacob, although he is God's chosen instrument to inherit the blessing of Abraham, he's equally awful as all of these other characters. He lies to his own father, not once, not twice, but three different times. And when the plan is communicated to him in verses 8 through 13, did you notice this? He is not concerned with the morality of the plan. He doesn't say to his mother, maybe that's not such a good thing. What he's concerned about is getting caught. What if dad sees and instead of blessing me, he curses me? And this is a sad testament, I think, this whole story about the sin and the dysfunction of people. But aren't you relieved when you read stories like this in the Bible that God can use people like this for his purposes? Because, like I often say as we read stories in Scripture, can't you sort of see yourself present in this text somewhere? Maybe not with the same particulars, but these people are a lot like you and me, aren't they? Scenes like this are just a picture of the human heart doing what it does in its natural environment. And so I think we find some hope. If God can use people like this to accomplish his plans, then God can also use people like you and me to accomplish his plans. Now, please understand, this is not an endorsement of your sin it's not an endorsement of my sin as if we should put God to the test and sin extravagantly so that we can watch him do what he does and work that for good for his glory. May it never be. This is simply the blazing light of assurance for us who place our hope in God that if God can work the sins of these people for his purposes, that not even our sin, as disgusting as it is in the eyes of God, not even our sin can undo what God has promised to accomplish. 
that should cause us to sigh, a sigh of relief. Because sin can be wearisome. It can be tiresome. It can be frustrating. It can be this burden that we wonder, like, will I ever shake this thing off and be free of it? But Christ has already secured our victory over sin. That's what the cross accomplished. Not merely the forgiveness for our sin in the past, but the full and final victory that we will one day have over all sin. Christ has accomplished that. And so we don't need to be discouraged. We can fight on confidently, knowing that he is working these things for our good. Our sanctification Our glorification is certain because God has promised that he will bring to completion the good work that he began in us. And so praise God. Praise God for his power to bring all of his plans to fulfillment. And be encouraged that the finished work of Christ includes for us bringing sinners like you and me to glory. But we might ask the question, why is this scene so important? I mean, if you've been hanging with us as we've gone through Genesis, then maybe you remember that like the first 12 chapters of Genesis covered many centuries of human history, maybe millennia of human history, and we went through it like that. And now we get to chapter 27, and it's like we've got two hours of history covered in a whole chapter. Why is this scene so important? Well, it's not merely because this is good storytelling. I like this story. I think it's a good piece of literature. But the big reason is because this is the moment when this sort of all-important blessing of Abraham that we've been looking at week after week after week passes from Isaac to Jacob. It passes on to the heir through whom God has chosen to continue to fulfill his promises. So the scene of blessing in verses 26 through 29, when we read that, we're like, this is kind of weird. Like, what is going on here? We don't really do anything like this. But I want you to understand that this is more than just the dying words of an old man to his son. This is more than sort of a merely symbolic ritual here. In some mysterious way, this is an actual conferring of the rights of blessing from Isaac to the next inheritor who will carry it on. Isaac received this blessing from Abraham. Abraham received it from God himself. And now Isaac is taking that real tangible blessing of God and he is passing it from him to the next carrier, Jacob, the son whom God has chosen. This is why when Esau begs for a blessing from his father in verses 36 and 38, Isaac replies, he says, there's nothing left. Esau, I have nothing more to give you. I've already passed the blessing on. This is not because Isaac couldn't think up some very kind, encouraging words to say to his firstborn son. That's not the problem. The reason why Isaac has nothing to say to Esau is because this blessing that he gave to Jacob was never his to do with as he pleased. It was God's blessing, and now it had been entrusted to Jacob. And despite Isaac and Esau both attempting to thwart God's plans, they fail. And so just as God declared would happen, 
the older is made to serve the younger, and Jacob becomes God's beloved instrument for fulfilling the promise to Abraham. And this is why this scene is so important, why it demands such an important, detailed retelling in the text. Now, central to this passage is the theme of faith, or maybe we might say the theme of lack of faith. Each of these characters, I think, shows an unfortunate lack of trust in the God that they claim to worship. Each of these characters, well, I I guess I should say Isaac in particular stands out as a disappointment because he was handed the faith of Abraham. He knows God's plans and intentions, and yet he tries to do what he thinks is best, not what God wants. But you know what's interesting? If you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, what you would find there is this verse that says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's a statement of commendation. That's a statement of praise about this scene from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. And I would say that although that doesn't appear to be the case at first glance when you read Genesis 27, it is true that in a sense, Isaac is operating with faith as he passes this blessing on. And here's why. Isaac had faith that God would fulfill the promise to Abraham, even if Isaac made the mistake in favoring the wrong son. See? Isaac had himself experienced the blessing of God that he received from Abraham. And so he trusted God. He knew that God would continue to make good on this promise. And he knew that he had a responsibility to pass it on to his son, even though he tried to accomplish his own purpose and pass it to the wrong son. And I don't know about you, but again, I can see a bit of my own self in this kind of behavior, can't you? Deep down in my heart as a Christian, I do trust God. I do. But I see things manifest in my life where I'm kind of like, do I really though? Sometimes I think I can improve on God's designs. I'm kind of like, God, I like what you've started here, but if I tweak it a little bit, I think we can get a better end result. I can put a little bit more effort and energy into this God, and I think we can kind of speed this thing along. Or God, if you just were to consider like my desire in this, I think, I think the end result would be better. I'm fickle, right? I think that with a little tweak of my own wisdom, I can improve upon what God is up to or what God has declared. It can be super easy for me to take my eyes off of the all-wise, all-powerful God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ and instead trust in my own efforts, my own skill, my own intelligence, my own wisdom to set the trajectory of my life. I can relate to the cry that we find in Scripture, I believe God help my unbelief. That sort of mixed up place of, I do trust and yet I'm unsure. And thank God that usually when I get in that mode, you know what happens? He lets my plans come crumbling down around me. He uses my failure to humble me 
He lets me fall flat on my face so that when I am lying there in the dust of my own self-made ruin, I'm left with nowhere else to go but just back to the arms of grace. And it's in that failure and in that humiliation when my own efforts come crumbling down that I learn to trust Him, that I learn to love Him more deeply, that I learn to actually believe that He knows what He's doing and He's doing good things with the ruin that I make. It's there in that place of humility that I see God's designs really being accomplished because what is His design for my life? It is to sanctify me, to prune me of my pride and my self-reliance that I might learn to more fully trust in Him. And thanks be to God that He takes our faith, though it's really pathetic, the size of that mustard seed, which is nothing, and He cultivates it and He cares for it to produce His purposes, to produce His glory. And so even our greatest failures of faith end up becoming what? A testimony to His greatness, growing us into the kinds of people who can carry the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us in eternity. Well, we're going to come back to the topic of faith at the very end, but I want to turn a corner and I want to use this passage to have a conversation about a very different but very important subject. Let's talk about the sin of partiality. That sin is woven thickly through this text. This is a sad, deeply divided family as we have it presented to us in Genesis 27. Isaac clearly favors his older son Esau. In fact, if you were to flip back to chapter 25, verse 28, what you would find there is that the text explicitly tells us Isaac favors Esau. And it also tells us that Rebekah favors Jacob. And so the sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism, the sin of showing preferential treatment for one person over against another person is a major part of what tears this family apart. And the Bible is very clear on this point when it teaches that partiality is a grievous sin. Partiality offends God. James 2.1 says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in that same chapter in verse 9, it says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And Paul mentions this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, Do nothing from partiality. And so preferential treatment for some people over other people, showing favoritism, engaging in the sin of partiality, is a highly destructive evil. But I found myself wondering as I was kind of reading this, is this really like an issue for us today? Like in families in particular, do families have this problem? Do parents engage in this? Like I'd like to think I don't engage in this. But then I remembered that like just in the past year, I have heard dozens of accounts from people that I know telling stories of growing up in homes where their parents showed favoritism to one child over another child or where their parents were particularly harsh 
to one child and not all of the children. And each one of those stories was accompanied by tender tears of sadness. And I realized this is a problem. The kind of family dynamics that we see in Genesis 27 are not that uncommon, even in families today. And while I'm sure that every parent would deny it, right, the experience of many children, unfortunately, is that they feel like they grew up in a house where their parents showed partiality in the parenting. So let me say first that if you grew up in a home where your parents favored one of your siblings at your expense, you were sinned against when that happened. That grieved the heart of God. It was wrong and it was evil and it shouldn't have been like that. That's not what God desires for families. And I encourage you, if you have woundedness in your heart about that, to take that brokenness to God, express it to Him, let Him pour out His grace, let Him bring healing so that you don't end up in the bonds and chains of bitterness or anger. And also so that you can be set free from the temptation to carry that sin forward and treat your own children with that same kind of partiality. Sadly, with Jacob, as we see the story continue to unfold, we're going to find that he engages in the same sin of partiality. And it is going to tear his family to pieces. And it's going to grieve him deeply in the loss of one of his sons. And so may God have mercy upon us so that we don't make the same mistake with our own kids. So on that note, let me encourage you to examine your heart when it comes to your own parenting. Maybe this was done to you, but maybe you need to go before the Lord and ask him, am I guilty of engaging in this sin with my children? That you don't show favoritism as you parent your kids. This could look like special privileges that you give to one kid and not another kid. Or it could, like, could look like heavier consequences for one kid, or maybe higher expectations for one kid than you have for your other kids. This is to say that partiality can manifest itself in positive benefits, but also negative treatment. Either of those things is a form of partiality. And if you bring this question, I think, before the Lord, you ask Him to search your heart and to reveal if you're guilty of this, I believe that He will reveal that to you, and He'll give you an opportunity to repent of that and correct your parenting, and you'll see fruit in your family grow out of that. Don't be like Isaac and Rebecca here, because not only are you engaging in sin against your children and sin against God, but you are setting yourself up for future heartache in the way that your family dynamics play out. Now, I also want to speak for a moment to the parents in the room who are fostering kids or adopting or have been through that process. And man, if you're not one of those people, I encourage you to pray for these families. They need your prayers. And what a beautiful thing to foster or adopt children. We already had Eric come up here and talk about that. I'm so glad that we have many families in our church who do this. In fact, years ago, I prayed hard for many years that God would give our church a heart for that because the need in Arizona is so great. And it's wonderful to see God answer that prayer all these years later. And I acknowledge that this is difficult. 
Fostering and adopting is work that is difficult. It's praiseworthy. It requires a lot of God's grace. But here's what I want you to hear if you're in this. And I hope it kind of goes without saying that if you foster or adopt children, then you're committing to treat those kids with the same kind of love and affection that you have for your own biological children. And if you're considering this process, then this is something that you need to consider very carefully. Can you do that? God bless you for the work you're doing to love these children. The Bible praises adoption, but it's essential that you strive to offer these kids the very same love and affection that you would give to your own biological children. You've accepted this responsibility to be their mother or their father. You've done that willingly. And therefore, to treat them any differently than your own biological children, either by favoring them or disfavoring them, in relation to your biological children, that is the sin of partiality. And it's not acceptable in the eyes of God. And so if anyone in this room feels convicted about any of these things, or maybe you have questions about it, I realize this can be a difficult topic. I would love to talk in person about this after the service. And I want to be gentle here, but I also want to exhort you. Draw upon the grace of God as a parent to love your children Equally, to love your children well, the way that God loves you as his child. Okay, but it's going to get real in here because I'm going to broaden the application a little bit further. The church is also called the family of God. And in God's family, we can struggle with the temptation to show partiality, can't we? Now, it's certainly not necessary for us to be best friends with everyone that we go to church with. That would be difficult. But we are not permitted in the body of Christ to love some people well and despise other people in the body of Christ. That is not acceptable. We should not give preferential treatment to people in the body of Christ for any reason, not based on their income, not based on their looks, not based on their career, not based on their education level, not based on anything. We should love the body of Christ equally in the same way God loves his children. And we should not have contempt for anyone in the body of Christ for any reason whatsoever. We should honor all of the members of Christ's body equally. And friends, again, I would encourage you to search your hearts on this to see if the Spirit is convicting you maybe for the sin of partiality in the way that you interact with your brothers and sisters in the church. Partiality is a divisive, destructive sin that tears people apart. Now, I'm going to go even one step further, and I'm going to say something that I think shouldn't be controversial, but it will be controversial because of the current cultural climate. So in the past, many churches in America showed partiality to people with white-colored skin, particularly at the expense of black people. And the people who did that engaged in the sin of partiality, and it was evil, and it was grievous in the eyes of God. But today, 
There's an ungodly mind virus deceiving many Christians. And it's leading them to believe that in order to correct a prior injustice, a new injustice is necessary. To be more specific, many black people were treated with a harsh partiality under slavery and under racism. And that was a heinous evil in the eyes of God. That should grieve us, I think. But God is not pleased that we would respond to that grief with two faulty attempts to correct the past. So let me explain this. First, God is not pleased when we make apologies for sins that we did not commit. Do not be deceived. God does not accept your self-righteousness in that effort. That reeks of false virtue and insincere humility. You cannot repent of a sin that you did not do. And we have enough to account for before God with the sins that we did do, friends. Don't you feel the weight of that burden already? Who do you think you are to take sin that you didn't commit and add it to sin that you are committing? The sin that we have is already a crushing burden that only Christ can bear. And so let's not add sin that we're not guilty of. And we're not guilty of the sins of others simply by virtue of our skin color or our family history or the country that we live in. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 30 is explicit when it says that each man will be accountable for the sins that he committed. And Revelation echoes that truth. And believe me when I say that you have enough to worry about with the sins that you have committed. Take those seriously. So don't buy the lie that you must repent of sin that another person committed. That is unbiblical. You can be sad. You can be grieved for the evils of human history without arrogantly accepting responsibility for those evils. Now second, God is not pleased when we try to correct past sins by committing new sins, giving certain people or certain races or certain ethnicities preferential treatment, even if they were mistreated in the past. We can acknowledge that happened, and yet we can still resist the temptation to engage in new evils. You do not correct the sinful partiality of the past by engaging in sinful partiality in the present. You only add sin to sin. When you do that, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. And we as his children are supposed to be like him in that we too show no partiality, not based on race, not based on skin color or ethnicity or wealth or beauty or education or any of the things that we tend to size people up and put them in categories of acceptable or not acceptable. We cannot live like this. The fact of the matter is that we are all equal before God, and we're equal before Him in two ways. First, because we are made in His image and we are infused with His dignity as His special creatures, that's beautiful. But friends, there's another way in which we are equal before God. In the church, we stand before God as equals 
because we are all dependent upon His grace. What pride could we possibly have? What way could we possibly evaluate ourselves better than somebody else when we are all here before the throne of God by grace? We are dependent upon God's kindness, His work, His mercy. And therefore, we're equal. We're all here, each of us, standing before the throne, utterly dependent upon the same flow of blood from the cross and utterly dependent upon the same flow of grace from the throne of God. And this should humble us before God. It should humble us before others to the point of total personal debasement. We should never as Christians feel that we have gone low enough. I was talking to a brother last week who was explaining to me he feels like he's pretty low. And I told him to kind of buckle up because he can go lower still. And so when it comes to the sin of partiality, racism is a great evil. But if you've not personally engaged in that evil, then you're not guilty for it. You should not feel you need to repent of it. And you must not believe the lie that you can correct the sins of generations past by engaging in sins in your own generation. More broadly than that, we must resist every temptation to treat people in the body of Christ preferentially. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so the antidote, antidote to the sin of partiality is to love others in the same way that you have been loved by Christ. And to remember that apart from grace, apart from receiving undeserved favor from God, you are nothing. And I am nothing. God has showed us love and kindness, so who do we think we are? That we would withhold love and kindness from anyone else when it has been so liberally poured out upon us. And of course, that goes far beyond just our brothers and sisters in Christ. It applies here, but doesn't it apply everywhere? Yes, because you have been given much. Much will be required from you in the way that you love even the world out there, all people. And we would expect that the world is going to fail in this regard, and it's going to show the sin of partiality. But far be it from the children of God to bring that sin of partiality into the temple of God and to destroy the body of Christ that he redeemed with his precious life. Let us not do what Isaac did to his family in our family. And if you'd like to talk more about this subject after church, I would love to talk with you. I think that there's so much ungodly noise on this subject matter being blasted into our ears that I found that lots of professing Christians are confused how to think about this. It's easy to get caught up in this. And so I would love to offer you some further insights into this if you want to talk after church. But let's make another turn, and I will try to bring us to a conclusion. Let's think about how this passage points us ultimately to Christ. And let me do that by highlighting once again what a scumbag Jacob is. He lies and he deceives and he thinks only of the consequences of getting caught. He has no concern for the immorality of his actions and yet he still receives the blessing. 
He is unworthy of this kindness that God shows him. And I've found in my years of pastoral ministry that many people think that material blessings are a sign of God's approval on your life and material difficulty, hardship, and suffering are a sign that God is displeased and he is punishing you. Maybe you have thought that. Now that was the case for Israel in the Old Testament and we can explain why that is the case with Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you can go read that. But this story comes before the nation of Israel. And so what I want you to see is that this tells us something profound about the way that God works. Maybe you are suffering right now. You're going through trials. You're going through hardship. You're going through difficulty. And you're fighting hard to honor God. You are combating sin in your life. You're seeking to surrender things over to the Lord. You're trying to treasure Him. And life is still hard. And you are wondering, why is God treating me so harshly when I am doing everything that I can to honor Him? And I think that's a fair question. The Bible wrestles with that question quite often. But all it takes is a glance, just a glance at Jesus to see that there's not a direct correlation between right behavior and earthly blessing. It's not that simple. Often the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And we need to look at our Savior, Jesus Christ, to see that this is often the case. Jesus pleased God in everything that he did. And where did it take him? Friends, it took him to the cross. And that's where Jesus is taking us, to the cross. What we need to understand is that the blessing of God is the blessing of righteousness itself. Righteousness is your blessing. That's how God is blessing you. God blessed Jacob in spite of his deceit because God had a plan to fulfill all righteousness through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham and the recipient of the blessing. But that does not mean that God endorsed or approved of Jacob's behavior. And so we need to rethink what it means to be blessed by God. For us as Christians, blessing is not primarily material. God's blessing for his beloved children is not money or comfort It's not fame, it's not health, it's not an easy, carefree life. Jesus had none of those things. God's blessing for his children is the blessing of holiness. It's the blessing of obedience. The blessing of pleasing the Lord through our life and our good conduct. Through our faith and our love. Regardless of whatever might come our way as we go through that. I mean, think about this. Jacob maneuvered and manipulated in order to take the blessing that was not naturally his by right. And in contrast, Jesus, who is our great example, lays down his life, his comfort, his honor, his prestige, in order to give up the blessing that was, in fact, rightfully his And we have a tendency to strive, to ascend, to get high, to gain more. 
more praise from men, more money, more assets, more prestige, more honor, that more people might glorify us. But our Lord chose to get low. He chose to descend. He endured shame and mockery and poverty and dishonor. We have a tendency to work towards being comfortable or secure, trusting in ourselves what we can gather up to protect us or preserve us. But Jesus, he endured discomfort and death. And he trusted in the Father. And as a result, his was a blessed life. This is not to say that we should absolutely reject wealth or honor or prestige. There's nothing wrong with those things. And and rejecting them just to reject them is just another form of self-righteousness that leads to pride. You ever seen somebody with a false humility because they're poor or destitute? That can be pride. What I'm saying is that the things that man tends to call blessings are simply irrelevant Take them or leave them, they do not matter. They are simply not to be factored into the equation. They're not the goal. They are not the true blessing God has for his children. The blessing that we are offered and to which we strive to receive is the blessing of Christ-likeness. That's the blessing itself. Jesus gave up his life and he was blessed even though he died. And unlike all of the characters of our text for today, Jesus actually did have faith in God. That whatever God planned for him was good. And Jesus is blessed forever. Because that trust in God allowed him to seek the favor of God through obedience, through righteousness, at the expense of everything else. And so here's the point. You have already received the blessing of God if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's already yours in abundance. There's no further blessing for you to look for or to wait for or to strive for. Christ is the blessing. He is the reward. He is the treasure whose value cannot be calculated. He is the fulfillment of the blessing to Jacob that came to Jacob even though Jacob did not deserve it. He is the dew of heaven that Isaac said Jacob should receive. And he's yours. He's offered to you. And all that's required is that you receive him by faith. You trust him. You believe that he is, in fact, a blessing. So, set your mind Set your heart, be courageous to pursue his kingdom. And though you don't deserve his favor, by faith you will be his treasured child. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and I simply ask that you would encourage your people through it. Do a work that you can only do in the words that have been said here, God. Minister to our hearts through your spirit in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.